Pardek would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land we record on, the Wadjuk people. We also acknowledge the role of Aboriginal people as the first scientists in Australia. Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people who just love it. I'm your host, Rose Kerr, and this season, we're talking all things environmental. Today, I am joined by Matt Vanderclift, a researcher who studies blue carbon and coastal ecosystems. We had a chat about seagrass, sea cows, and sea people. What do you actually do? What do I actually do? Would you believe me if I said I do as little as possible? (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) Um, Mostly, uh, I solve problems, or at least I try to solve problems. I'm a a scientist, and um, that's a fundamental part of being a scientist and solving problems. But I guess I... I try to solve particular types of problems because uh, I'm a marine ecologist so I think about the way marine animals and marine plants go about their lives from from day to day and I think about the way that humans use the ocean and about how those two things sometimes interact, sometimes play nicely, sometimes collide and sometimes uh, causes problems that uh, we need to try and fix. That's a really great description. I like that a lot. (laughs) Have you always wanted to become that higher level problem solver or did you get into science just through love of the ocean? I got into science out of curiosity and just enjoying being in nature. You know, when I was when I was a kid, I I was privileged to live in a a small town in, in Victoria not too far outside Melbourne with plenty of bush and I used to just run amok through the bush and and that's how I grew up so I I guess I just always enjoyed playing with nature and and that's what instigated my uh, I guess my move into studying nature which didn't really think about being a scientist for the for the longest time it's just kind of serendipity to the that I happened to end up there. So along the way, did you know that you wanted to move into kind of a director role or did you go into study just kind of just studying and seeing what happens? No, I don't think I had that kind of direction. I knew that I wanted to do something studying or being involved with nature. And, and so when I did my original degree which was in Victoria I, I studied environmental science thinking that I'd probably end up with a career as something like park management perhaps nature conservation of some kind but then you know the twists and turns of, of fate and serendipity I moved to Perth and I happened to live just down the road from the marine science labs oh, yeah. and uh I guess it was the early 1990s, it was the last recession that we had, it was difficult to find a job and and so one day I just wandered into the lab and said, I've got time on my hands, Um, can I do something? Um, Turns out that I could and uh, eventually I became part of the furniture and that became my, I guess, the first step in in the pathway to becoming a scientist. From there I, I went back to university, did a master's degree and eventually a PhD and here we are. Have you always considered yourself a scientist even before studying? I don't know that if I considered myself a scientist. I had a natural curiosity and and I guess I 
I didn't mind asking questions and you bring those two together and, and I guess you've got a scientist. Before we get into the next section, I'll give you a quick rundown of what blue carbon actually is. Basically, living things are made up of organic carbon. So this includes you and me, animals, plants. Blue carbon is the carbon that's stored in plants in the ocean. So ocean, blue, blue carbon. And this blue carbon might be key to helping us reduce climate change, which I'll let Matt explain. And it turns out that plants and the ocean are really good partners and, and combine to have a really good store of, of um, carbon in a way that actually helps us with climate mitigation. So plants being plants, they photosynthesize, they take sunlight and carbon dioxide, they turn it into plant, and eventually the plant dies. Um, the, the dead bit of plant then drifts down, becomes part of the dirt underneath the plant, and uh, normally, uh, if that happened on land, you'd have lots of things chomping up the carbon, lots mm. of bacteria, lots of decomposers. Um, but bacteria decomposers, usually they need oxygen. Uh, oxygen doesn't travel so well through water. So if it happens in water, the, the decomposers often can't keep up with mm. the amount of carbon that's getting thrown at them. And so it just builds up. So um, blue carbon is... is comes from the plants that live in the ocean and turns out to be a, a really good way of taking carbon dioxide out of the air and fighting climate change. And how was that connection formed? What problem, how did you go from problem to a potential solution? Yeah, well, I, I, I wish I could say I thought of it, but <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> Other clever, clever people elsewhere made that particular connection. I, I guess I'd made a career studying marine plants quite extensively. I'd studied things like kelp, things like seagrass, a little bit of mangroves. And so when these other clever people found the link, it was kind of a natural progression to, for me to go, hey, I can, I can do, do that too, or I can look at that too. Um, and I guess the, the little bit of extra that I was able to bring to the table that I can bring to the table is that there's not too many of us that do that sort of work in the Indian Ocean. Mm. Uh, the Indian Ocean's pretty big, um, so there's lots to do. <laughs> and can you talk us through a little bit about the actual process? Is it just a matter of if you want to get rid of some of the carbon and get it into some seagrass, is it just planting a whole bunch of seagrass? How does it actually work? Well, I like to, I guess, break it down in two different components. The, the first one is let's stop knocking it down in the first place. Um, because if we cut down a mangrove forest or if we dig up a seagrass bed, um, we take all that carbon that they've been burying for centuries mm. and we release it back into the atmosphere. So on, on top of burning the fossil fuels, we're adding a little bit of the old carbon that the plants have stored. So, so perhaps let's not do that. Um, the second bit is exactly what you say. If we can start to replant what we've lost or restore what we've lost, whether it be mangroves or seagrasses, uh, the plants naturally, as they grow, as they start to reoccupy the space that they used to occupy, they're going to do their thing, catch that carbon dioxide, put it into plant, and there we go again, the dead plant goes down into the dirt, 
and the cycle restarts. It's a pretty good system. It is a pretty good system. Why do people clear, say, seagrass, for example? There's lots of reasons. Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes, for example, the seagrass is living somewhere and we want to use that space for something else. Mm. We want to put a port there or something. So sometimes we know about it and we have to dig it up because we need to use the space for something else. But sometimes it's just unintentional and, and that's probably the biggest cause of seagrass loss around the world is that unintentional loss, usually from pollution and usually from uh, nutrient pollution. Nutrients go into the water. The sort of phytoplankton, the little single-celled plankton that live in the water, they love nutrients and so they go gangbusters whenever there's some in the water and uh, whenever there's a lot of them they tend to suck up all the light light can't get through to the seagrass seagrasses are plants they need light they die yeah so that's kind of how it works in most places and then going on from that when you're re-establishing either a mangrove they're probably going to be separate things but either a mangrove or a seagrass ecosystem are they reasonably easy to re-establish or is it a challenge uh, yes and yes, I, th- yeah. I think. It, it kind of depends what it is that you want to do. And, and there's lots of reasons for replanting a mangrove or, or restoring a seagrass bed. Um, and we might all want to do it for different reasons. For example, um, if we have a big area that used to be mangroves and we want to get lots and lots of carbon and and turn that into carbon offsets and trade the carbon and do all those sorts of things. We can plant particular sorts of mangroves that are hardy, fast growing, do their job really well. That's not too difficult. Planting trees, we kind of know how to plant trees. If we're trying to restore the system Mm. back to what it used to be, that's a much trickier thing to do. You know, putting Humpty Dumpty back together is is not that straightforward. Similarly for seagrasses, we kind of know some things, but putting a system back together, that's much trickier. Uh, we, we're kind of learning a little bit as we go along that you know, maybe, maybe manually planting isn't the best thing to do for seagrasses. Maybe we, we kind of harvest the seagrasses' natural ability. They produce seeds, and if we use the seeds, that might be a, way, a better way to go. Um, so it depends. How do underwater seeds work? Yeah, that's a good question Um, because you don't have wind and you don't have the birds and the bees, to. but you do have water, right? So there's seagrasses, they're plants just like regular plants on land. They produce flowers and pollen and all that sort of stuff. Wow. Um, But it gets distributed through water. So they pollinate each other through water and then the seeds um, get dispersed through water. Currents wash them away do they flower then before they go to seed yes oh that's so cool yeah like a regular plant you get the flowers the flowers become the seed the the fruits and you get the seeds from the fruits how do you go communicating with stakeholders who may not be scientists most of the stakeholders that i deal with are are not scientists Mm. um so that's I don't think that's really a big problem. Sometimes yeah. scientists do get caught up using the kind of science jargon and big words and um, and sometimes it's easy to, to lapse into that. So I guess, you know, rule of thumb, if I can explain it well to members of my family and 
they understand it, then you know, usually I'm going to be able to explain it well to somebody else. Uh, if I'm learning something new for the first time, it's also a good test for me. If, if I can explain it to myself, then I understand it. If I can't, then I don't understand it yet. Yeah. And how, what kinds of people, all the different disciplines people might work in, who would be involved in a blue carbon project? Wow. <laughs> I'm assuming a lot. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> really a lot. So it, you need a biologist or an ecologist or someone who knows about the plants, of course, but then maybe you need someone who knows about the way currents work. So you might need a, f- a physicist or an oceanographer. Maybe you need someone who knows a little bit about the way the sediment works. So maybe you need a a kind of chemist or a geochemist. Um, You might need somebody who knows a little bit about uh, tenure. So you might need a a lawyer of some sort. You might need a project manager. You might need people that just know how to do things with their hands. So you might need a whole bunch of tradespeople of various kinds. The list goes on. Who were you or what were you doing kind of before you found this area, whether it be the job you had while you studied or the job you thought you were going to have or the hobbies that you were doing kind of before all of this started? I tried a few different things, not, not necessarily out of choice, out of necessity. So, for example, when, when I was at university, um, in Victoria, I needed to pay my way, so I was working on a, a, a farm. It was a it was a, a flower farm in in horticulture. So that was weekends and days when I didn't have lectures were were spent doing that, and sometimes evenings sitting in a truck selling selling cut flowers by the side of the road. So so there was that side of it. Many many university students can relate to that that you you're doing a job that perhaps you you're not most passionate about in order to facilitate your goals. But at least that was mostly was working outside so so that wasn't too bad Uh, what else have i tried when i first moved to perth uh, i couldn't get a job because it it was a recession it was hard to find a job but i eventually got work being a caregiver for intellectually disabled young adults that turned out to be really really great for me Um, it for me, it was um, not because I had any particular skills. It was more about being a peer. So it was more about hanging around and, mm. and, and helping cook dinner, do the shopping, you know, go and do sports on the weekend. Um, so it was it was about learning to to interact in a slightly different way than, than what I'd been used to. And I, I think that was really good for me at the time. Definitely. What's something unexpected that you learnt from either of those jobs? Probably the unexpected was learning how to communicate a little bit differently. That was unexpected and I, I, I think, I hope, it's, it's helped me since then. Yeah. I feel like learning to communicate with any different group of person is going to help build up your like back knowledge of different ways to explain something and have a conversation and relate to people using using different words different style of speaking language that sort of stuff what's it like to work with people who are just starting out in their career i enjoy it Um, i know what it was like when i was just starting out when you when you have some ideas, they're kind of half formed. You're still trying to figure out, you know, quite how to 
how to work, trying to figure out the best way to think, the best way to talk, the best way to operate. Uh, so you know, I was privileged to have some really, really good mentors in my early career and, and continuing through through to now. Um, people that I was able to learn a lot from uh, and that helped me develop as a person, develop as a scientist. So I think, you know, hats off to the young scientists who are starting out today. I think some things are easier, some things are more challenging. Um, but I certainly enjoy the, the opportunity to, to help them out. I don't pretend that I know everything. Good, goodness knows, I certainly don't know everything. I don't, don't pretend to be the wise old man, but uh, hopefully I have a few bits of advice that might be useful from time to time. If you were just starting out in your science degree or science career today, where do you think you would aim to work? Or what kind of questions do you think would be driving you? The same ones or different things? I think things? they would be. Yeah? I, I might perhaps have wished that I'd twigged onto some of them a little bit earlier so that I could have maybe made a bit more of a difference a bit earlier. But I think the problems that I'm working on trying to solve now, I, I think are really good ones to be working on. You know, if, if we think about the coast and we think about the ecosystems that are on the coast, um, we get so much benefit from them. They, they feed us, you know, the, the fish we eat and, uh, are from those, those ecosystems. They, they protect us. You know, when, the, when a storm comes, it's the, the mangroves and the, and the reefs that are attenuating the waves and stopping them from eroding the coast. Uh, and at the same time, turns out they're keeping climate change dampened down a little bit as well. So what's not to like about them? What does a typical day in the life look like for you? Um, a day in my life 2020 is mm. a little bit different from a day in my life pre-2020, I've got to say. Mm. Um, I... And before this year, I'd spend lots of time on the road. So I would be away for 100 plus nights a year. Wow, that's um, a lot. Travelling. Uh, the Indian Ocean is a big place, so you've got to travel around <laughs> yeah, yeah. Quite, quite a lot. It's, it's a privilege. I get to go to a, a lot of countries, uh, experience a lot of cu cultures and, and meet and work with a, a lot of really, really great people. So that's a, that's a wonderful privilege. Um, this year has been a bit different, don't get to travel, so there's been a lot of Zoom and a mm. lot of WebEx and a lot of video calls. Uh, I can't say I'm overly enamoured with that as a system. <laughs> it was fine in the beginning, a little bit too much of that now. So I drive a desk a lot this year, yeah. I guess. Yeah, how do you go about working with the ocean when you can't necessarily get out into the ocean? We can still talk. Yeah. So there is that. There are some restrictions on the sorts of work that we do. So this year I should have been, for example, in Sri Lanka working on a, a mangrove restoration project. Uh, we've been able to do a little bit of work on that together remotely, um, but it's the Sri Lankans are, that are doing everything on the mm. ground. I, I don't get to do that fun bit at the moment. <laughs> um, but yeah. but we, get, we get to talk about it and I get to see some photos. And, and so I get, I get to maybe I'm live vicariously a little bit.
we're going to jump into some of the questions from the rest of the particle team. Do sea cows eat sea grass? Yes. That's amazing. Yes. I'm so happy about that. <laughs> if, if a sea cow is a dugong. Yeah. And a dugong eats sea grass. <gasps> oh, that's yeah. great. Oh, that's wonderful news. And can humans eat sea grass? Uh, I've tried. Uh, I wouldn't eat the leaf. The leaf isn't yeah. that edible. It's like eating a leaf off your lawn. That wouldn't work. But you can eat some fruits off some seagrass. I just, it's never occurred to me that a seagrass would have fruit, like be a, I don't know, it seems like such a basic thing. It is called seagrass. It is a plant. It should have it fruit plant. and it flowers and everything. Yeah. It makes sense. For some reason, I never thought about it. What's the fruit like on a seagrass? Depends on the species. Yeah. You know, as you can imagine, like plants, you know, the difference between fruits on all the different sorts of plants. Um, you know, some, some are sort of roughly the size of, say, the, the tip of your thumb. Yeah, uh, okay. Some, some are a bit smaller. Yeah. Do you remember what it tasted like? Green. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> like an unripe fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Green and salty. Do you have a favourite place that you've gotten to visit? Many favourite places. Uh, among the most memorable, I, I like Ningaloo. I've got to say Ningaloo is, is one of my favourite places anywhere, anytime. I like seashells. Great uh, environment, amazing undersea wilderness there, but also people, the culture. I enjoy Madagascar, uh, similar. You know, so much of it's unexplored. So, yeah, there's lots and lots of great places. Indonesia, Sri Lanka, really good places. Oh, now I just want to go snorkeling everywhere. <laughs> I'm going to jump forward then. If we're talking about Ningaloo, we've got a couple of questions. A lot more people are travelling up north and exploring the ocean. What's something that people should know about places like Ningaloo Reef maybe before going out there? Ningaloo is one of the world's great places. It's, it's a world heritage area. And there's a reason it's a World Heritage Area. It's it's unique. There's you know there's not many places in the world where you get you know great aggregations of whale sharks. You get clear blue water, corals going right up to in some places just a couple of meters from from the beach. So it's it's really unique and a wonderful place to visit. And I encourage everyone to visit. One of the dangers that we can face though is we can love it to death. It's, it's good to go and visit, um, but let's tread lightly when we do go and visit. Um, let's, let's not leave too heavy a footprint because if too many of us go and leave too heavy a footprint, then uh, it's going to lose some of that, that shine and some of that uniqueness. Absolutely. And what are some of the ways people can make sure they're minimising their impact on those ecosystems? It's a marine park and, and there are some pretty good regulations and guidelines about what you can do if you stick to those you should be fine that's good stick to the rules yeah. <laughs> regulated fun <laughs> yeah, it's regulated fun. Yeah. there's lots of fun to be had i've read that you worked up in the kimberley hmm. can you tell us a little bit about that experience what were you doing up there the Kimberley, I was doing a project uh, working with colleagues at the University of Western Australia and um, friends and colleagues in the Badi Jawi ranges. We were doing a project which initially we were looking at seagrass, um, which 
were essentially unstudied at the time. So we were doing some some really really basic inf- studies looking at um, things like we were watching grass grow, <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally measuring how fast the grass was growing, things like that. And then as as we got a slightly better and a slightly deeper understanding, we expanded, and so I started um, bringing in. The, work, the other work that I do, which is on turtles, and spent a couple of years working on turtles with the with the Bardi Jawi rangers there, and that was a, that was a pretty wonderful experience as well. They, um, you know, amazing wealth of knowledge that the that the rangers have. So I don't, I don't think I know who learned more from that experience. I suspect it was me. What's it like to work with turtles? Totally awesome. <laughs> we approve this pun. <laughs> uh, do turtles have individual personalities? I picture them being very playful, but that's because I loved Finding Nemo as a kid, so I don't know if that's actually true. They do and they don't. I mean, turtles are herbivores, and, and it doesn't take a, a large brain to be a herbivore. So, you know, turtles have a fairly small brain, and, and they're not the world's most intelligent animal but they are extremely fascinating yeah you know they've been around a long time and when you look at them you know, amazing animal they they've got a skeleton on the inside but you know they've got a you know that the exoskeleton almost that hard carapace on the outside they can they can pull their head in to to a point you know sea turtles can't pull it all the way in uh, you know they they live almost all their lives in the water except for that tiny percentage of the time where they have to leave the water to lay eggs of all things and you know so they've you've got a hundred kilo female turtle and she's got these little stubby flippers and she's <laughs> dragging herself up the beach and when she gets up there she's got to use those same little stubby flippers to dig a hole that's about three times the size of her then she's got to lay her eggs in there fill it all up again drag herself back down I mean it's a lot of work. It's amazing. It's a strange. Do we know why evolutionary wise turtles do that? Because it's a lot of energy. I don't think we can answer questions like <laughs> yeah. why. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> just, that's just, very true. That's they just do. Yeah, and they know what they're doing because they go back to the same place, don't they? Very close to the same yeah. place. Yeah. Have you ever gotten to see a turtle like the next generation of turtle come back? I have not. Um, hopefully I'm not quite that old. <laughs> fair. Turtles do live for a long time. That's fair. <laughs> In your career, what's the biggest mistake you've ever made? What is the biggest mistake? I've made many mistakes. Not, you don't learn unless you make mistakes. Mm. I mean, much of learning is about making mistakes and then figuring out, oh, gee, I better not do that again. I'm not sure that I can pick just one there's probably <laughs> too many of them. that's fair and it probably answers the question of would you do it again probably yes because otherwise you don't learn yeah yeah hopefully you don't do the same thing again and repeat you know you don't want to repeat your mistakes no you know, mistakes are the sorts of things you only want to do once right a lot of our listeners are kind of early career scientists or people who are interested in science uh let's say they've just made a pretty bad mistake uh, what kind of advice could you give them in terms of persisting through in that kind of search for knowledge and problem solving? I would say if you've just made a mistake, then just recognise that that's going to happen. We all, I'm, I've, I've made many, as I've just said, made many, many mistakes. Learn from it. 
figure out what the mistake was and why you made it and then try to be determined not to do that one again and uh, make a different mistake next time. Why should people care about marine ecosystems? So many reasons why we should care. I could give you the answer about how important they are to humans and about how they provide our oxygen and our food, but that seems to me that that's a very transactional view of nature. You know, that's that's looking at nature in terms of what it can give us. But um, probably the better answer, for me at least, is is the the reason why I got into this game in the first place. It's just inspiring and. You know, I was just curious about it. So is there a, do you need another reason? That's a good question. What's something that could improve in your industry? There's lots that we can improve. In my industry being science, mm. um, scientists have maybe a tendency like, like, like many other professions of, of getting carried away with bandwagons. And, and sometimes when that happens, um, we can jump on the bandwagon and forget about the the whole part and parcel of being a scientist is to critically evaluate evidence, to think about the problem and then think about how we solve the problem. And, and sometimes scientists in their enthusiasm to rush off and, and you know, work on something new and trendy forget mm. about the critical evaluation part. Um, that's the hard graft. That's the, that's the sweat and the toil. And a lot, you've probably heard that, you know, much of science is, is perspiration and not much of it is inspiration. So um, don't forget about the perspiration side. Yeah, yeah. Not in that rush to, in that rush to publish a paper, yeah, really like right. check and make sure rushing, that it's there. Rushing for inspiration, sometimes you, you forget to do the hard yards mm. and, and then you realise actually that wasn't very well thought through. Yeah. Hey, we've all we've all been there. We've totally. all made that mistake. Hundred percent. No, I have. What are some misconceptions of your job? Misconceptions of being a marine ecologist got to mm. be: it's not all about dolphins, clear water, and coral reefs. That's so disappointing. It's really not. <laughs> There's a lot that's about mud and dirt and heat and sweat and cold. Yeah, that's I've, very surprising. I've, I've been diving in boat harbours where the visibility is so low I couldn't see the hand if I put it in front of my face. I've been diving in uh, the middle of winter where after hours in the water I was so cold that my hand couldn't even hold a pencil. (laughs) There are some discomforts. Yeah. It's all worth it though. And we're almost at the end, but before we finish and before the fun fact section, which is my favorite segment, uh, what is next for you or what is your next dream project? What is next for me is to keep trying to solve some of the big problems and to see if we can start making a difference and reversing some of what's happened. So if we can get to the point where Let's say before I retire, we've started to reverse the trend of losing ecosystems and are starting to put them back together again instead. That'd be great. 
Do you have hope that that's going to happen? I do. How do you hold on to that? I feel like that's sometimes it's hard not to get caught up in all the bad news. It's hard to stay fixated on being like, no, we can do this. I think if you look at the last couple of decades, you can see that there's really a, a been a slowdown in the, in the rate of loss and a, an increase in awareness of what we're doing. You know, it's, it's normal to you know, not have quite the awareness of the damage that you can do. Uh, it's not normal to see what's happening and not try to do something about it. So I think we're seeing what's happening slowly and surely but steadily we're trying to do something about it. It's, it's a big old ship to turn, um, so it's going to take a little while to turn, mm. but I do think it started to turn. That's really good. And to finish up, uh, would you like to share a fun fact? My fun fact, sure. Uh, my fun fact is, did you know that I can figure out what you eat by cutting your hair or clipping your nails? What? Really? Really. <laughs> How? <laughs> so when, uh, when plants grow, they catch carbon and use nutrients like nitrogen in, in different ways. And because different plants grow in different ways, those molecules follow different pathways through the tissues. And each molecule and each atom of carbon or nitrogen comes in, in one of a couple of different flavours. And, and they're called isotopes. Oh, yes. And so once that plant grows in the leaf eventually it'll have a what we call a signature of of its different isotopes an animal comes along and eats that particular plants the carbon and the nitrogen and all the other uh, nutrients will go into the tissue of that animal mm -hmm. and it will have the signature of what it ate so if mm -hmm. if you went on holiday let's say you went on holiday and you went to asia and you ate a lot of rice-based meals. Then you went to Europe or Africa and had a lot of wheat-based meals. Then you went to America and had a lot of corn-based meals. Then you came back to Australia and cut your hair, gave it to me. I could snip it up. If you didn't tell me where you went, I could figure it out. So it is true, you are what you eat. That's so cool. And also a wonderful explanation of uh, isotope analysis because that's... I've always found it really challenging to understand. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Particle Podcast. You can find more of our content on all of the socials as well as at particle.scitech.org.au. Particle is powered by SciTech and everything we make is made in the wonderful science hub of Western Australia on Wadjuk Country.